All right. Well, as I had indicated, um, as we moved into our study of uh, foundational wisdom for home and family, as we were looking at that particular subject, that broad subject, as it as it's dealt with in the book of Proverbs, I'd indicated somewhere along the way that um, while we were talking about um, the relationship of husband and wife, uh, you couldn't help, and I, in fact, I did a couple of different places, you, couldn't, you can't help but reference uh, Proverbs chapter 31, um, and that last half of Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10, that is known, well known as uh, a section called the excellent wife, um, various other sort of titles are given to it, but really focuses in on this, this person of, of an excellent wife, the characteristics and character um, and work of, of this, um, this phenomenal woman of God. And so I want to start today to dive into that particular section. I'd said at that time that I would want to spend more devoted time to that as opposed to just referencing it, a few of the verses there. Um, because it's such a magnificent section of Scripture, um, and it holds up for us such an, a phenomenal model um, that I think is, um, I think, helpful for us and encouraging for us both as men and women um, in pretty profound ways. So, as a way of kind of introducing or stepping into this study, though, I'd like to begin with a little discussion, a little feedback, um, to kind of get our minds set in the context of our day and time and how we tend to think about things related to. Um, the distinctions between men and women and the roles of men and women and so forth. And so I'd like to start by having maybe the ladies um, uh, initiate the feedback. I mean, I want to I sort of allow the experts in the room to speak to uh, womanhood and, as opposed to uh, all the yahoos like us chiming in prematurely. So ladies, I would ask you to kind of uh, give some feedback. I'll, I'll kind of frame this up in the way of a, of a question or maybe a series of questions that really are me trying to kind of ask the same question from a few different angles, maybe give you different ways to kind of come at it. But, but think about this question with me and maybe provide some feedback for us. So for the ladies, what, what is the modern vision of the ideal woman? Or maybe you could say it this way, what does the modern woman of strength and accomplishment look like? Or what is most important to her? What are her priorities? Or maybe what message does she want people to get about her? So when you think about the modern accomplished woman, what, what is that vision? What is that person like? What, what priorities does she have? What, what's important to her? What does she want people to understand? What's her message? All those kinds of things. How would you characterize it? Yes? Okay, so you put it into the context of, it's very good, put it in the context of, of economic and vocational achievement, right? So CEO is, is one indication. Very, very good. Yes, what else? I would say her focus really is herself. I feel like she wants everyone to know that she's superwoman and she can do okay. all things she can work and do, you know, have kids and do you, you, you frequently hear, um, you know, I, I mean, I think I even heard this recently. It just seems like I remember seeing some kind of clip about some Usually it's a celebrity, you know, where it's a, someone who's very famous and they've reached some pinnacle of success in their sort of their celebrity vocation, whatever it might be, some type of performing art, whether it's movies or TV or music or whatever. 
And they also, you know, are married and have a family. And so, you know, the, the commentator or the sort of the Entertainment Tonight host or whatever would really gush and say, you know, she really does have it all. It's the idea that, you know, here's a woman who it, it, clearly, and everybody can tell, all you have to do is read the press clippings to know this woman, right? She has this phenomenal marriage, and clearly, by all of the you know, news clips that you see here and there, she's obviously a phenomenal mom, and she's at the pinnacle of her career of success, and so this is the woman who has it all. That's a, that's, that's a very clear and prominent message. And what's ironic about that is how we arrive at those conclusions based upon these little snippets of uh, time, and then oftentimes what you see in the longer view is not so... Not so wonderful, but that is definitely an image. What else, ladies? Any other thoughts or ideas about this this woman of strength and accomplishment? What does that look like? There is a great TV show called Great News. It's hilarious. And last night it was actually had Tina Fey as the CEO of the company, and she had her, um, you know, she had this. She has all these job offers, and she moves from CEO to CEO of different companies. It was just, it's perfect. I mean, it was exactly what you're talking about. And she had like, um, like three kids and she was, um, you know, meeting them, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle of the ocean on some island because they were busy, she was busy, and she could spend a few minutes with them and then they were going to go off their own ways. And that was basically, you know, the, accom the accomplishment because... One of, the late, one of the characters said, well, you know, you assumed she had no kids and she wasn't married because how could you be CEO of a company and still maintain that balance of, you know, having a spouse and children? And I think it very clearly pointed out that you really can't. Mm. We have limited time, right? We can only be in one place. Yeah, so good. What else? Other other. Concepts, constructs, and Hillary Clinton. Okay, <laughs> Hillary Clinton. Uh, like, well, don't, don't get. Like, I want to know positively, like how it's how it's viewed. I mean, I'm not. Okay. I think there's also the, the perception that she's, you know, smarter than her husband, smarter than her kids, smarter than everybody else, and that she really is the one ruling the family. That even if she is saying we're equal, the way it's all portrayed in TV and on, you know, commercials and shows and books, whatever, she she's the the real one who's steering the family. Her husband is, you know. Maybe not the smartest guy, or what, or even if he is, she's smarter. Yeah, so that's that's another good sort of um, social sort of uh, entertainment and media phenomenon in terms of how men are portrayed in light of these women, and oftentimes it's not so flattering to men. You're kind of like we're, we're the bumbling, you know, idiots who don't know which way's up, and save for this woman, which you know, in some ways, is true for me. I mean, I have to admit, but the fact of the matter is, is it's not really the right picture to to put forward. Um, in terms of how we're supposed to complement one another and so forth. So, but yeah, that's a good, that's a good, it's interesting that that is a pretty prominent theme um, uh, to, to put forward. 
Well, good. Anything else before we kind of move forward? That's, that's good. That's kind of what I was thinking you'd say and hoping that you'd say um, in terms of just, you know, setting this up. Um, but obviously, yes, I'm sorry. But the idea of this particular woman was not the CEO and so on and so forth. I mean, she basically was, she worked outside the home and everything. But the image that she portrayed was she used this loudmouth, brash, side, you know, sarcastic woman whose power was putting down everybody and everything around her. And that was her realm of power, yeah. you know? So there is actually a separate image of not just you have to be CEO, but you know, you, you elevate yourself above everybody else and you know, have uh, fun, if you wish, at everybody else's expense. And that was a really popular show, and it actually, I think, influenced a lot of young people who watched it. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't question that at all. It was definitely a cultural phenomenon in terms of entertainment, for sure. Okay, good. So um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, um, the goal here is not so much to say, okay, here's, here's what the world says a woman, a really want, strong, accomplished woman should look like, and now let's turn around and just bash all those ideas. What I, I really want to do is kind of talk about, sort of draw this distinction or, or see how Scripture draws this distinction except it's not a contrast between strength and weakness. It's not a contrast between accomplishment and failure. It's two completely diametrically opposed visions of the same thing. The biblical vision of womanhood is a vision of strength, of accomplishment, of ingenuity, of brilliance, all these things that any, any woman in the modern era would say, that's what I want. I want to be strong, and I want to be accomplished, and I want to be seen as intelligent and creative and, and, and have some strategic ideas. And I mean, that's what I want. And that's, and so, but the way, that, the way that it's been sought after has been more oriented toward reacting to ideas that they despise or oppose rather than what Scripture calls us to, and that's this idea or this mindset of redemption. Rather than reacting to, for example, oppressive you know, uh, behaviors, oppressive sort of things in the culture that are male-dominated or you know, unequal pay for men and women and all these things, instead of, instead of it being a reaction to all these things, like it is in the modern way of thinking, in the secular way of thinking, Scripture calls us always and in all ways to be about redeeming things, the way God is a redeemer. And so that's what I want us to kind of have set in our minds. These two things, these two ideas, they're only diametrically opposed really at the core in that way. That biblical womanhood is not about a reaction to anything. It's all about redeeming what God initially established in creation. It's about redeeming that ideal in light of the fact, the reality, that we are living in a fallen world and we have the corruption of our flesh that we have to contend with, right? So when you look at, at what happened 
in the, in the fall, one of the consequences of the fall was the, the grand launching of what you might want to sort of simply and a little bit crudely call the battle of the sexes, because that's where it really began. You know that it says there that, that uh, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, but your husband will rule over you. There's a clash there. That, that term for desire there is not this fawning, loving desire for your husband. It's a, it's a, it's a quest or a, a, a desire for control is what it is. It's the same term that's used, for example, in Genesis chapter 6 when God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It's the same idea. Its desire is to control you, to consume you. So this idea goes back to the garden and everything that takes place post-fall is really what? A story of God's redemptive work. And, and every person of God that he redeems is given the same mission, right? This mission of redemption. So in the, it stands to reason in the context of home, family, uh, the role of the wife, the role of the husband, children, all the relationships and everything that we're engaged in is to be oriented toward redeeming things, redeeming what God established, redeeming what God values, right? Instead of reacting, reacting. And I think that because of the, because of the powerful force of what's taken place in our particular culture historically in, in the last several decades, the vast increased power and influence of modern media as, as an influencer of the way people think, the dramatic shift that has taken place in what education looks like and is all about, which it's now more oriented, especially in higher education, it's more oriented toward driving political and social agendas rather than stimulating critical thought, creative thought, you know, free expression of ideas, healthy debate, robust debate around difficult issues. It's more oriented toward driving, you know, political agendas and, and, and fomenting, you know, outrage and fomenting this reactive approach to life in the culture. When you look at this, this whole issue of, for example, feminism as one of the, you know, movement terms or ideas that, that really is, is um, behind some of the thinking, obviously, of, of what it means to be a strong and accomplished woman. I looked up, the, I saw this article called The Four Waves of Fem Feminism. It's by Martha Rampton of Pacific University in Oregon. And I, I just pulled these snippets from her just to kind of give us an idea of some historical context of how the thinking has been shaped in our society and and how we have to admit that sometimes we imbibe some of this thinking even inadvertently, or it does influence us. Maybe it makes us, um, you know, I don't know, um, shy away from difficult conversations with people, or not wanting to uh, advocate as strongly a biblical model of marriage, for example, for fear of being, you know, ridiculed. That's just so archaic or whatever. We have to. We have to know that these forces have been strong. And, and the way this article frames this up is it frames it up as like waves, you know, these waves that have just kind of washed over our society. Uh, Martha Rampton, this author, says, The first wave of feminism 
took place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, emerging out of an environment of urban industrialism and liberal socialist politics. The goal of this wave was to open up opportunities for women with a focus on suffrage, women's right to vote. So, you know, there was definitely value and virtue in, in, in these, you know, the, the, the genesis of, if you want to call it the feminist movement, as it's being historically looked at in this article. But, but listen to what the second wave is, how the second wave is described by, by this lady. The second wave began in the 1960s and continued into the 90s. This wave unfolded in the context of the anti-war and civil rights movements and the growing self-consciousness of a variety of minority groups around the world. The new left was on the rise, and the voice of the second wave was increasingly radical. In this phase, sexuality and reproductive rights were the dominant issues. So it moved from a primary focus on, you know, women should really have a voice in the public square. They should be able to vote. Why, why can't women vote? That's a valid question. It's a valid discussion. But the, third, the second wave was, was much more radicalized. It began to merge with other reactionary kinds of movements. By the way, reactions to actual wrong. So that's the thing, is that the reaction mindset is not necessarily reacting to something that doesn't exist. It's reacting to maybe something that's really legitimately wrong, sinful, morally reprehensible. But it's all oriented toward reaction. And anytime anyone gets focused on reaction as a method and a manner and an approach to thinking, what happens? But the pendulum swings. We, 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 we don't have self-control when we're always in reaction mode, do we? And so when you put it in the context of of movements and ways of thinking, that's what happened. It became more radical. And the focus was on things like sexuality and reproductive rights were the dominant issues. Of course, uh, you had Roe v. Wade that took place in, in the early 70s. Um, and you had the sexual revolution, which just sort of opened up the floodgates of all manner of ways of thinking about, uh, about, human, uh, about human sexuality, about male-female relationships. Um, Cohabitation increases, it has an effect on marriage, it, 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 you know, uh, children out of wedlock statistics increase, obviously uh, abortions increased dramatically beginning in the 70s. I mean, all these things were sort of results, or the beginnings of results uh, that actually have real effects on culture and society and how people uh, live and, and view life. The third wave of feminism began in the mid-90s and was informed by, now it's going to get academic here, <laughs> It was informed by post-colonial and post-modern thinking. In this phase, many constructs were destabilized, including the notions of universal womanhood, body, gender, sexuality, and heteronormativity. You guys can Google that term. An aspect of third-wave fem feminism that mystified the mothers of the earlier feminist movements was the readoption by young feminists of the very lipstick, high heels, and cleavage proudly expo exposed by low-cut necklines that the first two phases of the movement identified with male oppression. So women, because of the sexual revolution, because of more free expression of sexuality, it almost was like an offense to the older feminist movement who was seeing all that as objectifying women and all that sort of stuff. So you can see how this is just like reaction to reaction to reaction to reaction. There's nothing redemptive in this. 
Now, the fourth wave, this is the emerging wave now. The emerging fourth wavers are not just reincarnations of their second wave grandmothers. They bring to the discussion important perspectives taught by third wave feminism. They speak in that, see if you can track with this. They speak in terms of intersectionality, whereby women's suppression can only fully be understood in a context of the marginalization of other groups and genders. Feminism is part of a larger consciousness of oppression along with racism, ageism, classism, ableism, and sexual orientation. Now, I don't know exactly what all that means, but I do get the last part where the fourth wave of feminism is now just emerging of a variety of other cultural isms that are all oriented toward reactionary thinking. We're going to correct the ills of society by reacting. And what ends up when you react, and actually when you react in mass, and you become a part of a movement, a monolithic movement, but the pendulum just swings in some other opposite direction. Now, I read this great article. Again, this is all sort of context and introduction because I just, I just want to hold up the biblical model to say that is a strong, accomplished vision of womanhood. I mean, it's astoundingly strong and accomplished. But I read this article, another article. It's just really well done. I, I, I tried to figure out who this, this lady was, but I think she's actually a college student at Connecticut College. I, I'm not 100% certain about that, but I think that's the case. And she wrote this article entitled, Why Feminism is Bad for Feminism. Her name's Kayla Kibbe, but she has some really interesting insight to this. A young, a young woman. It would never have occurred to me that my gender was a limitation had feminism not suggested it. Growing up, I never cowered beneath the male gaze or struggled in the grips of the patriarchy. And it never occurred to me that being female rendered me a minority in need of protection. I was not raised to be a feminist, and because of that, I was never encouraged to doubt that I was completely equal to men. In today's society, women are introduced to this doubt by feminism itself. The movement in its 21st century incarnation has become an inherently self-defeating entity. Feminism cannot survive as a movement if women truly believe themselves to be equal. Thus, feminism survives by encouraging women to see themselves as victims, thereby ensuring there remains an adversary, a source of conflict to give life to the crusade. It is a movement that must undermine its own goals in order to sustain, it, sustain itself by creating victims out of its followers and calling it empowerment. Modern feminism has trapped itself in a paradox and lured its followers into a losing battle. If women are truly equal, feminism itself is superfluous. Thus, for feminism to survive, women can never win. Feminism only wins when women lose. Women can only be empowered if they are victims. The heart of my opposition to feminism, however, does not stem from the heavy-handed you-go-girl sentiments currently dominating my Twitter feed. Rather, my aversion to the movement in its modern-day incarnation comes from an unwillingness to see myself as a victim. Without oppression, there can be no uprising. Thus, feminism depends on women being victims. It is a movement nourished by its own defeat. Women are indoctrinated into feminism under the belief that they have been oppressed by the patriarchy. In the feminist rhetoric dominating Western society, women are taught that various ambiguous foes, society, the patriarchy, etc., pose a constant threat to their independence. If a woman, like myself, can't identify any signs of having suffered under this daunting omnipresence of oppression, it is because she has internalized it from a young age. 
She has been subconsciously infiltrated by this all-powerful villain. Thus, feminism robs women of their ability to even take authority over their own thoughts and opinions, as they have already been corrupted by the patriarchy. Feminism leaves women entirely at the mercy of the very system it claims to subvert. Don't worry, your failures and insecurities aren't your fault. How can they be when your thoughts aren't even your own? It's not you, it's the patriarchy. It's incredibly insightful about this, these notions of what it means to be a strong woman. And these reactionary movements and ways of thinking, they don't accomplish anything. In fact, they do just the opposite. They totally undermine the very, the very thing that they're fighting for. I thought that was a, an incredible article. Now, moving closer to the, the text at hand, John MacArthur wrote this. Uh, um, actually, I think this is a, a part of a sermon on, on the same passage. He kind of described it this way. He says, if our society and our culture could design a woman, what would that woman be like? Well, let me see if I can pull it together for you. She would work at a job, build her own career, demand and get equal pay with men. She would refuse to submit to her husband, demanding equality with him and everything. She would have an affair or two or three, a divorce or two or three, an abortion or two. She would definitely exercise her independence. She would make sure she, has, she was eminently fulfilled herself. Talked about the selfishness. She would rely on her own resources. She would not want her husband or her children to threaten her personal goals. She would have her own bank account. She would hire a maid or a cleaning service. She would eat out at least 50% of the time with her family or without. She would make cold cereal and coffee the standard breakfast fare for the family. Now, that's not so bad, right? Coffee and cereal. <laughs> and quick frozen meals, the usual dinner fare, and she would certainly expect her husband to do half the housework. She would be tanned, coiffured, aerobicized, and bulging with muscle. She would be shopping to keep up with the fashion trends and making sure that she could compete in the attention-getting contest. She would put her children in a daycare center, making sure each one also had a TV in his or her room so that when they were home, they wouldn't interrupt her routine. She would be opinionated. She would demand to be heard from and eager to fulfill all her personal ambition. The world would applaud her, and she wouldn't be able to stay married or happy, and her kids would probably be into drugs. But she would be a woman of the times, and she is a million miles from the woman of God described in Proverbs chapter 31. So some of that is what you guys basically described in your own words. I didn't lead you, I didn't, right? That was just your own description, and that's kind of that's the idea. And that brings us to this phenomenal description, this biblical model of womanhood that is stronger and more accomplished than any vision that we could articulate here in terms of the modern conception of this, conceptions of this, or going back through history and looking at these different waves of reaction to oppression and all these different things that have so dominated and characterized modern thinking on what it means to be a strong, accomplished woman. Yes? And behind all of those ideologies, you can still hear the same devil's voice saying to the women, has God really said... That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's the same That's right. The same, it's the same deception, the same lie. In fact, anytime you see any kind of movement like this, Go back and read Genesis chapter 3 over and over again and just start to think about what is really driving some of the thinking there. And it always goes back to that. Yes? But when you look at the family, families aren't what they are to be in the Bible. There's so many divorces and single moms raising kids who want to elevate themselves that they're doing it all. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a society. I mean, we talked. We've talked about this as we thought about, you know, family and how it's described, marriage and family, and how it's described, and, and what's upheld about it in Scripture. And and it, the model itself, whether in terms of how it describes husband and wife relationship, or husband and wife role and responsibility and duty in the home and in the family. It's oriented toward long view mission, multi-generational effect. And what often happens, just like you were talking about about the garden, that focus in the Garden of Eden was on what? A very short-term idea. A very, in other words, let's bring it down to this particular type of view. And so you have men and women adopting a, a lifestyle, a way of thinking and living, a way of sort of assuming a, a disposition, a set of values, a way of, of charting their course, a way of defining success and failure. They assume this, this identity, and it's all immediate in its orientation with no concept or no vision for what long-term implications might be that you just sort of articulated. You have increases. What, what happens when you have increased an increase in divorce, um, excuse me, yeah, an increase in divorce, or an increase in abortion, or a, a, a diminishment of the value of marriage such that it, you, know, you, you move into sort of a youth hookup culture, where you just move in together and you cohabitate. And statistics showing people getting married later and later in life, and not, not wanting to have children, and all these different things that are so oriented toward me, now, self-satisfaction, self-fulfillment. But guess what? The law of God stands. I don't care what any of us think. I don't care what mindset or philosophies we adopt. It is transcendent and eternal and immovable. And what happens is these movements and these ways of thinking over and over and over again collide and crash against the transcendent and movable law of God. That's what happens. Yes. So was, when you were talking about the, the opposing views of the same thing, that was my first thought is that women's focus has shifted from they're both making an impact and, and women want to make an impact, but we've shifted our thinking from making an eternal impact to making a temporal impact. We want to impact the business world instead of our children and our family and our homes, which, like you said, goes through generations. That's right. But if we're focusing on these temporal things, that dies with us. But if we're impacting the generations, that continues. We're actually making a bigger impact than what we can make if we That's right. It. That's right. That's exactly right. And when we look at Proverbs 31, for example, you know, we're not talking about some very narrowly defined, very specific and particular concept or construct for a woman or a wife. It's very, um, um, it provides many avenues for women to use their gifts, to accomplish much, um, to have even, even uh, ideas or um, varying degrees of what you would consider worldly success. 
But it goes back to what's the point? What's the purpose? What's the focus? What's the goal? What am I doing this for? And that's where the rubber really meets the road. And we're going to definitely certainly talk about that. Yes. You know, she buys land and sells them. That's right. She makes sashes and sells them. So she has like, you know, kind of like a job or a trade or, um, so, but, you know, there's got to be balance there. Right. And it's, what is the focus? It's the why. It's, it's, it's what, what's the point, right? And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you guys know you're teaching the lesson for me, right? Which is exactly what I want. I mean, this is so great to have you guys. I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, I, I'm, I'm literally telling you what I was hoping would happen would be that you ladies would sort of sound this, these things out and articulate them from your own experience and your own perspective. Because, I mean, I can obviously, you know, study the scriptures and, and articulate what they mean and all that. And, of course, I have my own wife as a model of this in my own home and life and marriage, but, but hearing you guys is just, it's great. I'm so thankful. So keep it up as we continue to go forward. Um, just to remind you guys, one of the things that we highlighted as, as a point or a principle from Proverbs when we were talking about the relationship of husband and wife, I said that a good wife, as we see in Proverbs, is a gift from the Lord, and she has the capacity, or even I would say power, to be a profound blessing and a source of stability for her husband and family. So right from the get-go, we identified this as a, uh, an indicator of what it meant to be a good, a good wife and a, and a, and a woman. It's not, it's not an image or a vision of weakness, of subjugation, of, you know, know your place, stay in your lane, you know, let the men do their thing. It's not, that's not the vision at all. Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Now listen to this power. But she, she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 18.22, 18, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and it obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. A stark contrast for husbands and men to think about. You can talk all you want about house and wealth, about accomplishment, about material possession, about you know, gaining all these things that you think would make you the man that you are, but wisdom says a prudent wife is the gift from the Lord. Proverbs 14.1, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. 
I'm sorry, but that is not a position of subjugation or powerlessness at all. That's significant influence, significant power. But it's power channeled in the right direction, driven out of the right motivations, oriented toward the right goals and objectives. I think that goes back to what she was saying about Roseanne. I think women have a, biblically have a quiet power, but like with that cultural shift of women need to be loud mouths, we need everyone to see and hear our power, which shifts it away from where we really can make that impact to, yeah. you know, it's, I think what she said about that and just, you know, hearing you say these things, it's this quiet kind of behind the scenes power, but we've come to believe that we have to flaunt it and yeah. it just goes badly wrong. And of course, everybody knows that, that the men, especially me, I reserve the right to be the loud mouth in the room. <laughs> that's, that's my prerogative. But no, that's exactly right. That influence is significant, and it, it, it's not associated necessarily with volume mm-hmm. or with quantity of words, right? Or even immediate. You know, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of this has a long, like you said, a long-term impact that, you know, um, as a mother, a lot of what I do, it isn't seen right away. Right away, that's you right. see the results. That's right. So you think about this, this idea of reactionary thinking, well... One of the characteristics of impatience is, you know what? I'm not seeing the results I want right now. So I'm going to react, and I'm going to do something different or try something different or go in a different direction. But the long view and the recognition of how God works over time and how time and truth do literally go hand in hand, that requires character, virtue, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, those kind of things. Well, as you come to this this entire chapter of Proverbs chapter 31, David Hubbard, one commentator, sort of described it, introduced it like this. He says, if mastery is the curriculum of most of Proverbs, dependence is the lesson here in Proverbs 31. Achievement is how we selfishly label gifts made possible by others. I love that quote. Let me say that again. He says, achievement is how we selfishly label gifts made possible by others. The final words that the sages collected are designed to provide a constant reminder of who those important others are. So when you go to Proverbs chapter 31, before you get to this section on the excellent wife, you have the first nine verses, which is an ode to one of those others who is really the one who made achievement possible. Or contributed to it greatly. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 31 verses 1 to 9 to kind of just establish the context of where we're going to go. And again, we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, here, uh, but we do need to kind of, I think, set it it up for us as we move forward. Proverbs chapter 31 verses 1 to 9 says this, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. This This is a son, a king, recounting wisdom that he was instructed in by his mother. She's the important other associated with his achievement, his accomplishment. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. 
It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for the rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This opening refrain, this introduction here to to Proverbs 31, provides us with this vision, this, this, this window into King Lemuel, which we don't know really anything about him, uh, honestly, but in, into his upbringing, into what his mom taught him. And you'll notice right away that her instruction to her son as a king and a ruler centered on his character. It's centered on matters of virtue and on ways of living that flow out of ways of thinking. It's about wisdom. It's about the law of God and understanding where real purpose is found. And in particular, for someone who has responsibility and oversight and leadership and influence over others. And it's a very intimate picture here, by the way. When you look at these opening statements, these questions, what are you doing, my son? This intimate designation, I'm talking to my son, what are you doing? It's, it's, a, it's a way of saying, listen to me. It's, a, it's a, an attention-getting device. What are you doing, son of my womb? So it's not just a reference to a son in a general generic sense, but the very one who, who, who sprung from my loins is the idea. Very intimate language. What are you doing, son of my vows? This idea of a woman who vows before God and vows before her husband what she will be as a wife and a mother. You have images of this in the Old Testament where where God is, is opening up a barren womb, and I think it's Hannah, I believe, is the right reference, where she vows before God if he would open her womb. It's, 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 it's this kind of conviction and commitment about motherhood. So you have this very intimate portrait being introduced to us. And, and she goes right at the core of what would be... a familiar abuse of power for men. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. This is a euphemism for uh, uh, sexual immorality, for infidelity. In fact, in this context, it would be sort of like the idea of harems and concubines and using your power and your, your, your authority to gratify your sensual desires. And she characterizes this not as some momentary you know, point of weakness or not some, you know, base physiological desire that you're just getting satisfied in in, in some myriad of ways. She's saying this is the way that you give your strength to another. This is the way that you, you diminish yourself at the core. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Now, when you think about Proverbs in general, what do we find from Solomon himself? When you go to Ecclesiastes and when you look at the full scope of Solomon's history, you have a man who basically violated the very instructions that he was giving to his sons, particularly in this area. And what did it do, not just to him and not just to his home and family, but to the entire nation he was ruling? It brought it down, ultimately. 
because he, he connected with, married, and had you know, affairs, really, had harems of women who were devoted to other gods, and they influenced him, and that desecrated worship in the kingdom, and it ultimately led to the demise of the kingdom and the division of the kingdom. And so this, this instruction here is potent and powerful, and, and mom is going right at it, right at the core. And she goes on to describe the other, another vice that would be very common, and that is this vice of drinking wine, of drunkenness, and, and, and using an intoxicating uh, element as a means of just dissipation and waste and, and debauched living, which would not be something unfamiliar or uncommon among those in power. And she's saying, don't, don't do that. Why? Because you don't need to forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. What's on her mind? This strong, wise mother providing counsel. What's on her mind is justice and service to those who are weaker or who might be oppressed. And if you become a man who is captured by these base vices, the issue is not just that you will make mistakes along the way. The issue is, is that you will not be a man of justice. You will not be a leader who serves people well. I mean, she's getting at the very core of, of concepts and principles of servant leadership. Not domineering leadership. Not authoritarian, self-centered, self-driven leadership. So here's this woman with this influence trying to influence her son who is a king. So don't give yourself the strong drink. Rather, drink should be used, in this case, kind of like as a medicinal element to, to help those who are hurting, to dull pain of those who are hurting. In other words, don't open your mouth, it says in the end, don't open your mouth to these kinds of intoxicants, but open your mouth in defense of those who are defenseless. Speak for those, it says, like in verse 8, for those who can't speak for themselves. And judge righteously and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's powerful instruction from a godly woman to her son. And then it turns to verses 10 to 31 and find an excellent wife. And it starts in verse 10. And this entire section, verses 10 to 31, is really, it's a, it's a poem. It's a Hebrew poem. It's an acrostic. And we've referenced this in other sections of Proverbs, these uh, not, not complete acrostics like this, but uh, we talked about the idea of an acrostic. But basically what you have here is you have the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet beginning each verse, the word, beginning word in each verse. And it's, it's a, a rhetorical device. It, it's, it's oriented toward both making this very memorable. It's, it's something that could be memorized. I mean, everybody knew the Hebrew alphabet, right? You learn the Hebrew alphabet. It's like we have the, you know, the English alphabet. You learn that you know, early on, the ABCs, right? Well, the same kind of idea from, child, from childhood. You would know the Hebrew alphabet. So this would be an acrostic. It's just like you know, you develop, some people develop these acrostics for study tools. You have to remember some certain concepts in history or whatever, and you come up with this acrostic that spells some word, right? It's the same kind of idea to make it memorable. So each verse begins, the first word begins with the 
first letter or the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But it's also, it gives this idea of completeness. It's a complete picture. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete image. And in fact, this particular passage holds up really what is the ideal. Now, how many of you ladies in the room, when you, I'm assuming most of you, if not all of you, have read this section. In fact, let me read it real quick because we're going to have to continue this next time, but just want to kind of get our, our outline and where we're going next week uh, in our minds. But let's just read this, and I want to have a question for you. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Now here's my question, ladies. Is that an encouraging section of Scripture or a depressing section of Scripture? It's challenging, isn't it? I mean, I'm reading that and I'm going, man, I'm glad it started with an excellent wife because I'm like, but seriously, when you look at that, that is, that's significant. I don't know how, I mean, I can't even come up with the right words. But what we need to recognize here is this is the ideal being held up. And, and what I think is an important sort of starting principle for, for our thinking about this passage and other passages that are like it, I would, I would equate it with something similar to what the Apostle Paul instructed and said to those that he was writing to in the New Testament at different times. He would say this, follow my example, not period, but follow my example as I followed the example of Christ. In other words, he's saying, I am an example for you insofar as I am following the example of Christ. This is held up as an example, as a picture of the ideal. It needs to be something that we think of, that the ladies in particular think of, and the men understand as this is aspirational. This is the target, the aim. This is what you hold before you. This is not to be some idea or some, um, some list that you put on your refrigerator or in your journal or whatever, and it's like this checklist that you continually beat yourself up with. 
nor is it to be this idea in the minds of men that it's like the accountability list. Well, you know, you haven't really done much with the wool and flax lately. You know, can you, can you step it up on the whole wool and flax thing? That's not the idea here. This is holding up this grand vision of the ideal wife. And it's really oriented toward aspirational thinking and toward what we're striving toward and to recognize that insofar as these principles that we've already identified here, these principles that are behind it, these character qualities, these, these elements of virtue that have to be present internally are what's going to result in whatever the external fruit might be. There is, there is character and virtue that this ideal woman represents. And that's what drives and determines and motivates all that she does. And that's, that's the ultimate point. That's the ultimate objective. So as we go forward, we're going to have to wrap it up here. But what we're going to talk about next week, we're going to break this down in three simple ways. You could, you could break this down in six ways or ten ways. You could kind of break this down very, very discreetly if you wanted to. But I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to kind of take this in, in three uh, outline points. And the first one we're going to look at is her value to her husband. And you see that in verses 10 to 12. An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So very, very tight focus on the value of this woman to her husband. And then we're going to take a big swath, a big section, and just kind of encapsulate it under this idea. Her vigor and her virtue. We're going to look at both of those together because they just it's just this big composite picture that you see in verses 13 to 27. You see this woman of incredible strength that's motivated and driven by phenomenal virtue and character. And that's verses 13 to 27. And that's where it describes all the things that she does and how she's motivated to do these things. What's really underneath the, the, all the action, all the virtue that she's demonstrating day in and day out. And then the last section we'll look at in verses 28 to 31 is her vaunted reputation. Vaunted reputation. Of course, I love this passage. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, as he praises her, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. This, this sort of culminating result or effect of all that comes before is a home and a family that recognize this woman of incredible strength and virtue. And it's not just something that they silently appreciate. It's that they are verbal in their declaration of the virtues of this woman, holding her up as someone to be uh, admired and, and actually her example to be followed. So that's where we're going next week, and I'm looking forward to it. And um, I'm going to be actually depending upon you ladies to participate in providing good tactical examples and feedback and how you've worked through some of this yourself and worked some of it out and, and all that. I think that would be really helpful for us to, to hear. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed.